For those of you that grew up in church communities really deeply connected to the Spirit, in church communities where the gifts were celebrated and practiced openly, where, like the church community my wife grew up in, banners were waved and confetti was thrown and spontaneous dancing erupted, this message will not land for you. So just know that now. But for those who struggle to believe or have felt that this part of their Christian faith is a little too touchy-feely or have selectively just chosen to leave aside the Holy Spirit in your pursuit of faith, then I hope that this morning is cathartic for you. So let us begin. And in fact, what you don't know is we already have begun because you've already been exposed to my initial teaching point. In the first two minutes, the phrase, the Holy Spirit has rolled off my tongue like sweet honey many, many times. And for the last four months, as we talked about Jesus, I never once referred to it as the Jesus. I didn't speak one time about how the Jesus overturned the tables, right? On Good Friday, I don't offer my prayer to the God and thank him for sending the Jesus in that way. Why not? Because it's weird and impersonal. Because I understand Jesus. Because I can actually see and follow his ways. There is something tangible about him as a person. For many of us, and although incomprehensible, and we all know that, But for many of us, Jesus actually makes sense and therefore can be personal. Feelings of closeness and personal contact are not true for me when I think about the third member of the Trinity. And because I tend to be more formal, more formulaic in how I talk about the Holy Spirit. For many of us, for me, the Holy Spirit is a disembodied idea rather than than a living and active being, and our language speaks to this. Theologian Clark Pinnock says this, in the creeds common to East and West, references to the Spirit are brief and occasional, at times sounding even perfunctory. In liturgy, one will find many lines praising Father and Son, followed by the phrase, with the Holy Spirit, as a kind of afterthought. Our language is often revealing. The Spirit is a third person in a third place. At times, the Spirit can even sound like an appendage to the doctrine of God, a shadowy, ghostly, poor relation to the Trinity. This little nuance in how I and we talk, I think, highlights the bigger point, which we intend to uncover and wrestle with in the following weeks. The point being that the evangelical church has left the spirit largely unknown, misunderstood, and can be forgotten. So if this is true, which it is in my life, and I would guess for many of us here, I believe this is an incredibly sober indictment on the current state of our theological understanding. Joseph, uh, recently in a staff meeting, this was either last week or the week before, 
reminded uh, that although, reminded all of us that although we are from different areas, different church backgrounds, different experiences, our common evangelical theology, uh, theology or theological understanding and practice of the Trinity was probably more similar to Father, Son, and Holy Scripture than it was Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You see, the Scripture and its importance, its inerrancy, its infallibility, the, all these things were not only discussed more often, but potentially, in your experience, held in higher regard than the third person of the Trinity. And not only does this reality mean we miss an entire facet of knowing and communion with God, but I would argue that there is something significant, significantly dangerous anytime you diminish one thing and elevate another to greater importance than its intention. So how has this happened, maybe, is the question. Why do we find ourselves in this place? How have we effectively neglected a third of the God that we say we follow and trust? I'm not actually going to answer this question historically this morning, like Russ mentioned earlier, but I am planning to provide two personal reasons that I think have served as roadblocks to a vibrant understanding of Holy Spirit in my life. These roadblocks, although not exhaustive and not intended to be prescriptive for everybody, I believe might uncover or begin to uncover the answer to this question of why. So let's begin with the first one. Most of my experiences dealing specifically with Holy Spirit have left me feeling weird or manipulated. So let me give a little context to this, all right? Although I don't consider myself necessarily a church kid growing up, I did attend a Methodist church with my parents when we were not traveling for my sporting activities on Sundays. Services at Covenant could be described as orderly and structured. There was a liturgical pattern to the service that we followed, and it was not to be disrupted. Services started on time. You wrote your name in the attendance sheet that went through all of the pews. You quietly listened to the message, and service always ended with people putting their hands around each other's shoulders and singing and swaying to Jim Moore's hit worship song, Our Covenant. That's actually true. Every service ended that way. There was not a lot of built-in space for the movement of Holy Spirit. There was not a lot of time allocated to listening. In fact, as I reflected back on my church upbringing, I can't remember a time when Holy Spirit was mentioned, let alone talked about, discussed, taught upon. So, this means when I attended a day-long worship and training seminar my freshman year of college, and the first speaker was an impassioned charismatic, I was not totally ready for what unfolded. Young Life, which was a, uh, the ministry I was a part of in college, I had given a lot of my time, uh, my energy to Young Life. They had invited a few hundred of their volunteer leaders for a staff, or uh, leaders and staff for a training. Uh, all these folks coming from Northwest Washington, from this big region that we were, and we were to attend this day-long training. 
as we had done in the past, we were looking forward to a day of worship, a day of connection, a day of humor, and a day of encouragement on our shared mission to reach teenagers for Jesus. After the first worship session, the keynote speaker, a woman from Seattle area, entered the stage and spoke at length about the healing movement of the Spirit in her life. The story centered around a destructive relationship. What had started as harmlessly putting his hand on her knee ended in the horrific experience of sexual assault. The message was heavy to say the least, but what followed was an extended period of time of her calling to the stage all the women in the crowd who had had similar experiences or were questioning the motives of their boyfriends, their male friends, their male counterparts. The band came back up to the stage and the speaker began speaking in tongues over the mic, breaking into utterances saying, more, more, more. As tearful women started walking toward the stage, I could in that moment appreciate the healing and the voice given to the voiceless in that moment. But just when it seemed like those who had wanted to come forward had, this woman would break back into tongues and would continue to say more, more, more. And this went on for a long time. Although I'm sure and I continue to believe that she was praying for more healing, I couldn't shake the feeling in that moment that she was praying for more people to come to the front to prove her point. Women would come to the front and she would acknowledge them by saying thank you or bless you, and then they would return to their seats having grabbed a pamphlet about warning signs of sexual grooming and additional resources that might be needed. But there was no follow-up. There was no guidance. There was no walking alongside these women who had their scars ripped open in that moment. I understand how triggering even the retelling of this story could be for some, let alone listening to the speaker and being left with not much more than a pamphlet in that moment. I, like I think all in that room, desperately wanted healing for anyone that had had this experience, but to open the wounds to a group of unsuspecting and unprepared people seemed wildly inappropriate in that context. So I'm sitting there, and although I'm confident in the honoring of my then-girlfriend, Grace, her compelling and emotional message paired with my first hearing of tongues was confusing and really overwhelming. I couldn't help but wonder what Grace was feeling and thinking. Directly following this session, we were all dismissed to the adjacent cafeteria for lunch. Many women still in tears, some huddled in groups, some sitting alone, nobody really knowing what to do. And at our table, we sat in silence until one of my friends tested the waters by saying, what did you think? The conversation that unfolded was a shared feeling of unsettledness and confusion and anger, how it all unfolded, grace included. Now, again, I'm sure the motives were great. 
But this first experience of publicly inviting Holy Spirit to work and use of the gifts created far more confusion and strangeness in my understanding than it did wonder and peace. So as I continue to grow in my faith, this experience is then affirmed by several documentaries, many of which I'm sure we've seen debunking Benny Hinn's healings, exposing charismatic indoctrination camps, pushing kids to be a part of God's army, and exposés on well-known televangelists from the 700 Club, all using the spirit to manipulate people into lining their pocketbooks. So you take all this into account, And the majority of what I have experienced and seen has been confusing at best, deceitful at worst. Now, I rationally know that these experiences are not representative of the actual work of Holy Spirit. Rationally, I know that. I have been privy to some amazing things that I can only attribute to the movement and redemptive action of the Holy Spirit. The miraculous healing of Elidoral. Many of us witness that here in this place. The way that our church community gracefully forgave and accepted past staff members after moral failings could only be attributed to the movement of Holy Spirit. Even the fact, honestly, the fact that we sit in this place right here, right now, after a year of mandated closure can really only be attributed to the work of Holy Spirit hemming in our community. But like with most things in life, the extremes, especially the extreme negatives, have a way of clouding vision. The good things are easily overshadowed and forgotten amidst the situations that are disconcerting. And in this way, I feel like I'm in recovery, that I have not yet been ready to reemerge into spaces and opportunities where spirit is called upon to be active. The second reason is that I like control of my life. How many others like control of your life? The ones that didn't raise their hands, you guys are just lying. So (laughs) all there is to it. We all like to have control of our own lives. And this is perhaps the greatest hurdle for me. Availing oneself, availing myself fully to the indwelling of Holy Spirit requires a relinquishing of control. Now, Christian faith in general is about giving up control, but really for someone like myself who deeply values commitment and loyalty and discipline and hard work and steadfastness, My values fit so well into a life built around obedience and sacrifice that it takes to follow Jesus. They don't so much when you begin talking about opening yourself up to interruptions, patiently waiting to hear or be moved, about suspending rational belief for the miraculous, or feeling deeply about situations. I'll be the first to admit that my faith is still largely built upon the things that I can control. I've worked diligently to order my life around the message of Jesus. I have developed practices and postures that embody the call I believe is placed on all disciples to love God 
and love others. I've sought to live in a way that embodies grace and mercy and upholds sacrifice as paramount. But in each of these things, I am still the one choosing what and how and when. My life as a disciple has been formed around the reworking of my will to align with the values and teachings of Christ, not so much about the openness to the movement and conviction of Holy Spirit. A.W. Tozer speaks to this idea more corporately when he says this, if the Holy Spirit was withdrawn from the church today, 95% of what we would do would go on and no one would know the difference. If the Holy Spirit had been withdrawn from the New Testament church, 95% of what they did would stop and everybody would know the difference. My life, and I'm guessing many of the lives of you in this room mirror Tozer's first assertion. I actually am not confident that there would be a recognizable difference in 95% of who I am and what I do if the Spirit were removed. The commitment and discipline I've worked to cultivate would lead me to live in very similar ways. The outward aspects of my life might seem unchanged. It doesn't take a history class to see that as the church has become more structured, more formalized, and endowed with more power, its reliance on Holy Spirit fades. What's been true for me, I think, parallels the truth that Tozer is highlighting about the church at large. But, and this is maybe where this message becomes a touch more hopeful, there is a lingering question in my life of what might I possibly be missing? Could God have even more for me? What if my life, what if I opened my life to be more like those from the New Testament church rather than gripping so tightly to the comfort that I have built and protected in my world? There's a story in Mark 9 about a boy who is possessed by an unclean spirit. The spirit causes this boy to be mute and would seize him by throwing him to the ground where he would foam at the mouth and grind his teeth, the scripture says. As the boy is brought before Jesus, he has an episode right at Jesus' feet. And Jesus turns to the father who is there and says this or asks this, how long has this been happening? From childhood, the man responds, and then he says this, if you can do anything, have compassion on us, help us. And Jesus responds in that moment with what I imagine is kind of a wry smile and says, if I can or if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. And then in what I believe is perhaps the most honest and self-aware statement from anyone in the Bible the man cries out, I believe, help my unbelief. That statement right there, I believe, help my unbelief, captures the essence of my relationship with Holy Spirit. 
I can theologically assent to the veracity of the Trinitarian reality. I've witnessed unexplainable things. I will attribute these things to the work of Holy Spirit. As pastor or as a pastor, I have learned how to say the right things in prayer and in conversation to sound like I am really in touch. But I have to admit, help my unbelief. Unbelief that manifests itself in cynicism. Unbelief that keeps me from truly thinking prayer will change things. Unbelief that would lead me to spend far more time researching the best surgeon than it would asking for a miracle. And the list goes on and on and on. In some ways, it's like Spokane's North-South Freeway, right? I know you guys were all thinking this. I believe, but help my unbelief. Ten and a half miles of freeway started 20 years ago, and it's just over a little more than halfway done. I believe because the legislation has been passed. I believe because the work has begun. I believe because I've even driven on parts of it. But do I actually believe that there will be a stretch of freeway connecting I-90 to 395 just north of Wandermere? I don't know. Honestly. <laughs> In my faith, I rationally believe core theological tenets. I seek to embody the life of Christ. I avail myself to the function of the community. I work hard to do what is right. But ultimately, when it comes to a life given to Holy Spirit, I am what Parker Palmer calls a functional atheist. And I don't say that to be dramatic. I actually think it captures where I am at and where I think many of us might be. That thinking is the thinking that ultimate responsibility for everything rests on me. At the end of the day, it actually rests on me. So where does this leave us? Where does this leave me? I think with a decision, a simple decision. Either we continue to function in the same way that we have, or like the father of that young boy, we call out to help for our unbelief. We actually seek further learning and understanding. We create space in our lives to be uncomfortable. We spend more time around those that seem to be connected in a deeper way. We give ourselves to the practice for like most things that do not come naturally, practice is necessary. If you're like me, you have both consciously and subconsciously distanced yourself from an equally significant and important member of the Trinity. And in some ways, we have relegated this true embodiment of the Holy Spirit to those that are just special or those that are more devout. But Tozer continues from that earlier quote that I read when he says this, the Spirit-filled life is not special. It's not a deluxe edition of Christianity. It is part and parcel of the total plan of God for his people. This is God's plan for you, and it is God's plan for me. But it means that we need to work to put aside our preconceived notions or our past negative experiences and at least open ourselves to something new that God might have for us.
This is the intention of our series. Today, I wanted to identify and give voice to what I believe is a pervasive attitude toward Holy Spirit. I wanted to offer other skeptics in this place just a moment to take a deep breath and say, I'm not alone. But I am suggesting that we don't stop here. I'm asking that those who have more willingly opened their lives to the movement of Holy Spirit to pray for us and to lead us in this coming weeks. The next five weeks will be about exploration and practice, and I would encourage you to come with an open mind and an open heart, to be willing to be uncomfortable, to wait, to be patient, to trust that a better life actually believes and operates in ways that don't assume everything ultimately rests on you. Bonhoeffer reminds us just how critical this type of life is when he says this, the Holy Spirit is the living God, not some inert concept. The church community has to trust the Holy Spirit in every decision and believe strongly that the Spirit continues to be present in the community and at work in it. The Spirit will not permit our community to grope about to darkness if only we are willing to take the Spirit's teachings seriously. So Newcom, the next five weeks will be about taking the Spirit's teachings seriously. And I invite each of you to join me to see what might be in store and to open ourselves to the movement of Holy Spirit.